Welcome back to another episode of Money You Should Ask, the podcast that dives deep into the psychology of money, our personal history with money, and the stories behind them. I'm your host, Bob Wheeler. Today and over the next few weeks, we are hitting the rewind button. This week's rewind episode is Creating Wealth from the Inside Out with the amazing Michelle Arpin-Bagina. Michelle is a certified financial planner, but what sets her apart from other financial advisors is her expertise in the unconventional, non-financial aspects of life satisfaction, financial therapy, and behavioral bias. She believes that we need to examine our money stories and scripts to rethink what we know about money and have more of it. In our conversation, Michelle shares her insights and experience to help us understand the psychological and emotional aspects of creating wealth. She offers practical tips and tools that can help us shift our mindset to generate wealth from the inside out. So if you've ever felt stuck or overwhelmed by your finances, or if you're looking for a fresh perspective on creating wealth, this episode is for you. Tune in and listen to Michelle Arpin-Bagina share her wisdom and expertise on creating wealth from the inside out. Which one is the rewind button? Nope, it's not that one. Aha. Hmm. Bob, it's the button on the left. This one? Yes, Bob. Michelle, it is so great to have you here today. So great to be with you. Well, I am just going to, I'm going to jump right in. You know, you said that all your childhood memories were related to money. So I don't know if you were like putting money in the bank in your head or they were some negatives. It's like, what was that first money memory? It was not putting money in the bank. Um, Actually, my, I have two, my, I have one with my mother, one with my father. The one with my mother was opening up a piggy bank. It was a white ceramic piggy bank of a cat. and around Christmas time, she would break open the piggy bank. And that was the money that was used to buy Christmas presents. My parents had started a business. Money was pretty tight between the ages of like four and seven for me. The other memory I have was around six years old, my father coming into my bedroom and asking, can I borrow some money? And I had a bank on top of my bureau and I asked him, well, what do you need the money for? And he said, cigarettes. And I said, no. (laughs) And unfortunately, he, right in front of my eyes, he took the money anyway and walked out of the room. And I started crying. And they were tears of frustration because I was worried he would think I was being stingy when I was really living my values at six years old that I didn't want to give him the money because I didn't want to give him money for something that would hurt him. Right. So that's where it all began. And just going back, you know, my, my parents, they started this business when I was about four and around seven or eight years old, their business started taking off. And while money was tight, everything in the house was okay. It was when they started earning more money that all of the stuff showed up for me, not for me, for them. And I just witnessed this growing up. So there's so many stories I can tell here, but I got really interested in the emotional side of money from really early on. Now, when it started making money, did you get the cigarette money back? (laughs) 
I never did. <laughs> I never did. <laughs> Good question. So, you know, one of the things that when you're starting to share this and, and I'm hearing these stories and at first I was like, are, 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 do we have the same parents? Um, you know, my my parents borrowed from our savings and, and many times, uh, yeah, money would just disappear. Uh, but what I want to point out to people that are listening is that what I'm not hearing you say is my parents are bad people and this is what they did to me. What I'm hearing is, that like, look, our parents did what they did with the best intentions and we received it and took the impact in different ways. So some person might've taken that and said, okay, whatever. Another person might've said to my grave, I will hold my piggy bank and hide it, right? We all take on a story and that's independent of the actual interaction we had with our parents. So I, I just like to point that out that I have lots of things to say about my parents, but I don't blame them. Yeah, I, well, you're meeting Michelle 2.0. Michelle 1.0 was very angry, very upset, and definitely blamed them. So I have evolved, and I've come into um, really some compassion and an appreciation for who they were and what they were dealing with and the stuff that they didn't know how to do better. That was definitely an evolution for me. Yeah. Um, There there was a very... um, there were other moments, like when I was 10, my father uh, wanted to buy a brand new car. And my mother was out of town visiting relatives, and he called and asked, is it okay? And he always did this pretend permission thing. And it started when I was six. Can I borrow the money? No, you can't. Well, I'm going to take it anyway. Right. Can I buy the car? No, you can't. He buys it anyway. Well, when I was 10, he was hiding out. He was hiding the car in the garage. <laughs> And he swore my brother and I to secrecy. And I remember being a little kid going, do you think she's not going to notice when she gets home? (laughs) Well, there was a huge explosion. And then meeting between my parents. And then fast forward to when I was 17, and I should have seen this one coming. When I graduated from high school, I was standing on a dock at a marina and overlooking my father's shoulder was a brand new yacht in the water. He had paid $185,000 cash for it in the 1980s. Oh, wow. And he looked me in the eyes and shrugged his shoulders and said, I don't have the money to send you to college. So mm. the, the comedian in me, I fantasize now looking back that if I had a do-over, I wouldn't have said a word. I would have just pushed him in the water. But <laughs> it's a revenge I'll never take. <laughs> And I wouldn't trade anything for any of these, um, any of these stories, any of these journeys, because it's made me keenly aware of all of our um, the background that we have that we bring to tape to the table with money, all of our emotions around it, and my interest in that um, really led me. Like I remember growing up, seeing my parents at their highest and best, which most kids do. They were hardworking. They were good people. They were honest people. And they had it all together. They just were a hot mess when it came to their money. (laughs) And I saw that. And I remember thinking to myself, if they could just get out of their own way. And I am positive that I grew up to become a financial advisor and coach on both the technical and the non-technical aspects of money because there's a little part of me that wants to give to people I work with 
what I couldn't give as a kid. I didn't have the skills and I didn't have the power to do it, but I do now. So that's how it's all evolved. And like I said, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't trade my journey. What ended up happening for me is I, as I stood on that dock, this this is interesting. So I was raised, you'll be the first to go to college. You're smart. My father even took me on college campus tours. So it was a little cruel that he just bought a boat without telling me and there was no money. But I had internalized basically that I was a college um, graduate in waiting. Like all I had to do was go to college. I'll be the first to go. You're smart. And I was always told you can be anything you want to be. So I did not know how I was going to afford to go to college, but I remember standing on the dock saying to myself, it costs a lot of money to go to school. You don't have any money. All right, how am I going to make money? And I got a job at a bank within a few months. They asked me to take a college community uh, college community course, which I did, and they reimbursed me when I passed. Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> so I learned about college tuition reimbursement and over eight years working full-time, that's how I primarily paid for my education. So I always say, everybody says when there's a will, there's a way. Yeah. I always say the will is the way. Yeah. It'll show up. That's so awesome. And I think, you know, what's even important about that story for me is that uh, it didn't have to be the traditional, I must do it in four years. I must live on the campus. I must, like, it it doesn't Mm -hmm. have to be the same flavor for everybody. Like, what works is what works. Um, What would you say, um, because you talk about this, um, and I I also believe it, that we have stories and scripts that we take on as kids. We make lifetime vows when we're six, uh, (laughs) and then we use those vows to make adult decisions that no six-year-old should be in charge of making. What were some of the stories and scripts that you saw as a child from that cigarette experience, from the piggy bank for the Christmas gifts. What were some of the stories that you took on from mom and dad unconsciously or just an awareness on your part? Yeah. Well, I, uh, I think there's a couple sides to this. So my, my parents' backgrounds couldn't have been more different. So my father came from a family of entrepreneurs who did very well financially. And my mother came from a background of really partly an immigrant story and, her parents worked in a Converse sneakers factory for 40 years. In mm. fact, if you go to my office, I have a pair of Converse sneakers hanging in my office in, in honor of them. So their, their backgrounds were very, very different. Um, and what that brought was a little bit of a confused mixed message. On the one hand, rich people were snobby and bad. And on the other hand, there was this very hardworking... Um, never spend beyond your means kind of work ethic. And I think a lot of that from the family perspective is one set of grandparents, they earned what they earned, right? It was factory work, here's your hourly wage, Mm -hmm. simple math. On the other hand, it was a little more entrepreneurial. So uh, there was a little bit of more money will fix my problems because they had the ability to make more money. Right. Whereas on the other hand, it was very vigilant. Money should be private. Don't spend beyond your means save for a rainy day. If you don't have that emergency fund, you're in a panic. So I got a mix of both of those things. And clearly where my parents evolved together in their relationship was really to a money status kind of approach. 
with some vigilance. So there was a lot that came through. Um, I'm sort of like Kmart and Neiman Marcus at the same time right. myself. <laughs> <laughs> Both places have some good bargains. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. So you said that uh, on your father's side, more money solves everything. That was a, a belief that I had. Um, I still have found that unconsciously, unconsciously, it still pops in once in a while. Like, oh my God, like I used money as a way to fix things. Oh, I'll make this relationship better. Oh, we're having a fight here. Take some money. Um, can you speak to that a little bit? Because I'm sure that I am not the only person, um, and your dad's family are not the only other family that have this belief that if I just have more money, I can solve all my problems. And, and can you speak to the truth or the fallacy of that? that belief? Yeah. Uh, well, it's like, to me, it's analogous to something that you want to fix in your life and you're not going to be happy until you fill in the blank with that thing, right? Lose weight, find a significant other, you know, any fill in the blanks, right? It all has to come from within. For me, how that script shows up is in workaholism, which is a hallmark of more money will fix all my problems. Okay. Well, how do you get money? You work. Right, it's one way. I don't. I decided not to rob banks. I figured work was a better option. Um, so the workaholism, I, I've, I, I have. Uh, I, I was definitely unaware of that, and of course, Michelle 2.0 has become more enlightened to realize that how much that actually plays into my life. And the other side of me, I think, where it came through is in money vigilance. So. As much as I can openly speak about these stories of my childhood, um, that was a hard-won battle for me to get through the shame and the secrecy mm-hmm. of everything that was happening behind closed doors that no one else knew about. And what was very difficult to wrap my mind around, but I acted out on, was it was a, it was emotionally and financially insecure my entire upbringing. And that really drove a very big script for me on the money vigilance side, which is safety, right? I'm all about safety. Mm. And I have to even watch out for that. It'll show up in the way that I invest my money. I have to temper that, but I, at least I've done the work to see it, right? And when you can see it, we all know this, when you're aware then you've got something to work with. And I think for your, for you, I think the kind of the mutual language that we speak here, I think part of what we're both up to is in looking within to surface where did your stuff come from so that that six-year-old is not opening up the 401k statement when it arrives in the mail, <laughs> right? I mean, you, I always say this to my clients, like, how old are your kids? Six. Okay, well, when the statement arrives. I want you to just hand it to her and say, listen, let me know what you think about this and uh, which direction we should go in, right? Like you'd never do that. <laughs> but that's, and it's not our fault. We don't know that this is going on. Absolutely. And I, I want to speak to this piece about transparency, about having, you know, the secrets behind closed doors and having your father engage you and your brother to like not say anything. Um, you know, I had a client that was sharing with me, they were working through some stuff and the mom's routine was buy all this new stuff, hide it in the closet. Don't tell your father, hide it when he's there. And then two months later, start wearing it. So then when he would say, wait, that's new. No, I've had it a while. 
so that she wasn't directly lying. But Mm -hmm. what it taught the kids was you must lie to your significant other. Um, You have to keep everything uh, separate. They can't know. And like so many people think that a financial conversation means let's have a fight. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I really just want to point out this place of the more we can actually be transparent about that stuff to be able to say, listen, I'd love to have another drink or take a vacation with you guys, but my budget's tight right now. I'm a little cash flow poor. I'm not poor. Cash flow is tight. Um, And being able to say, yeah, I'd love to go to Neiman Marcus today but I'm going to be doing my shopping at Walmart because that's what my budget says today. And, and, and to take away that shame of, we don't have to keep up with the Joneses. You might not even like the Joneses. Um, like the, the, but this, this piece about transparency, because it puts everybody in a bind when we're sworn to secrecy within our own families. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, well, it certainly teaches lots of different things for that. Right. Um, I mean, my father, in in my instance, you know, it's similar to that mom that you're describing. It was, please keep it private. And yeah, it's not the type of stuff that any parent should be dragging their kids into, right? It's um, any anxieties that we as adults have, our children are not prepared to deal with those. It's a really unfair position to put them in, right? They're going to get enough of our stuff without us trying to do that with them. The, the transparency piece, you know, there was somebody that asked me, what's the one story you never told? And when she asked, I thought to myself, well, I'm not telling that story, like, <laughs> ever. And it worked on me. That question really worked on me for quite, quite some time. And the one story I would never tell was my quote-unquote college story. I never told a soul about what actually transpired with um, my going to college. So I'm going to go back to that for just a second because I think it hits on a couple of things that I wrestled with that may resonate with some of your listeners. So if we just boil it down to our basic needs, self-worth and love, and a lot of our money is tied up in that, whether we're trying to strive to feel that by way of our money, and then how do you get to that place where you resolve that and you just are enough, and the love comes from the relationships, right? And money is a relationship, which I think is always such a weird thing to say because yeah. it's it's a dollar bill, it's a coin, it's not a person. Mm-hmm. But it animates our lives just like real relationships do. My process was to actually go back and write what happened from the age of 17 on that dock forward. And by writing... I basically made myself relive every part of the experience that I could recall from what was I doing when, what were the lucky breaks and what were the hardships and how did I feel? What was I thinking that I didn't say and all of those types of things. And by the time I was done with that, I just decided it's time to say it out loud. So I really, to me, I just decided to make the stakes really high. I signed up for a one-day public speaking course in New York City. My office is in New York City. And I said, you know what? It just doesn't feel any more pressurized than to get up in front of a room of strangers in a skyscraper in New York City and tell your story. And at the end of that refresher public speaking course, I got to do just that. And I thought I was healed enough to do it and almost had a nervous breakdown before, like no joke, before I had to get up and talk. I was fortunate in that 
the coach in the room, I asked her if we could step outside. And I explained to her that I had made a promise to myself that if I had a chance to tell my story, that I would do it. And I was crying when I was doing this. I was so embarrassed. And this woman held my hands and looked me in the eyes and said, just tell me your story. And every time I would choke up and stop talking, she's like, just let the tears come. Just tell me your story. That's all she kept saying to me. Mm. And I told her the whole story. And she said, do you feel like you can walk in and, and tell the story? And I stopped and thought and said, yep. And I went in and I told the story. And the good news was I didn't die. I literally, it was a biological chemical reaction that felt life or death. I literally thought I'm going to die. Mm-hmm. And I didn't. And for me, there was like life before telling that story and life after. And I never realized how much that story had had a hold of me, even though I was married and had a great family and a great career. The piece I was missing that I didn't even know, I had robbed myself of my sense of belonging by not telling all the parts of my story. That's what I robbed myself of by not sharing the parts that felt shameful. And I I know I'm going on and on here. I just want to go back to the shame part for a second. What I realized as I was writing my story, because I got to this point where I started asking myself questions in my writing process, and I was asking myself, why did you want to keep these things probably more secret than your parents did? I mean, my parents never talked openly about it either, but I kind of feel like I kept it more secret. The reason was really two things. I never wanted to tell the truth of the college story because everyone was anticipating that I was going to go. And my fear was people would wonder what I had done that was so awful that my parents would do an about face and not send me, right? That's, and I, looking back on that, that's a really heavy burden for a 17-year-old. That's a big number to be doing on yourself. That was the shame. But what it boils down to was judgment. I was worried about other people's judgment of a situation that they really had no real context for, that that was not a one-time event. I mean, what I left out is my parents had private airplanes. You name the car, it showed up in our driveway at one point or another. Airplanes, hang gliders, you know, just lots and lots of really big ticket toys. And every single time they would buy one of those toys, they were down to their last $5. Right. And nobody knew that. Yeah. It just looked like a family for really successful business and life's going really, really well. Yeah, I really appreciate you sharing that story. And mm-hmm. I, I, you know, for me, there's so many takeaways, but, I, you know, for people that are listening, there is no shame in being your authentic self. Like there's no shame in what the truth is. Um, people might judge it or people may not understand it. Um, but we, you know, I just really encourage people not to hide those pieces. Like the more that you can actually say, this is who I am and be vulnerable, uh, the more you actually get to have your life back. And my previous version of myself, all of my decisions were life or death. And um, everything was that will kill me. And so Mm -hmm. I love that you went towards your fear 
And it's what I encourage people to do all the time, move towards those things that you are scared of the most, because that will be so liberating. Um, and I, I, so I just really appreciate that vulnerability there because it is hard when, you know, we internalize those things sometimes and say, oh, the boat's more important than I am, or mm-hmm. I don't bring value. So I know that my self-worth has just gone down a few notches because, you know, like for me, I was taught that I am my assets, right? So if I don't mm-hmm. have assets, I have no value. Like my goodness and compassion mean nothing if I don't have lots of zeros behind the ones. And wow. so I just really appreciate this piece about like how you were transformed and willing to get up and share your story, even through the tears. And folks, this stuff is not easy. There will be tears. (laughs) There will be (laughs) anger. (laughs) And there will be joy and there will be laughter and there will be connection. There's a, it it takes a lot of work and, 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 and you've, Got to be willing to be uncomfortable to do this stuff. Uh, it's not for the uh, the light of heart. I mean, it is. It, there's work involved here, and uh, I so appreciate that your your willingness to say, "Wait a minute, I want more out of this. I'm gonna keep. I'm gonna keep stepping up." And and here's the beautiful thing. This woman sat there and said, tell me your story. There mm-hmm. are people out there. It's why I believe we have a left hand and a right hand so we can reach out for support if we can learn to ask for support. There are so many people that will hold space for us, that will make it safe for us um, if we're willing to do a little bit of the work and meet people even just halfway. Yeah. Uh, I got extremely lucky in that the person who you know, was literally holding my hands and looking me in the eyes, uh, that she was a strong, empathetic, non-judgmental person. That was just luck because I, when I look back on it now, like I said earlier, I thought I was healed enough to tell the story. And what I've learned is you have to be healed enough to tell the story, but yet you have to tell the story to be healed also. So it's a really delicate balancing act and you've got to choose wisely. I mean, I went in there a little bit naively that, well, I actually thought I could just get up and tell the story. And then when I was there, I I clearly was not all the way ready, but I'm glad that I did it. And I'm glad that you encourage people to do it. And, you know, it's, we all, we all say it's so hard to talk about money. No, no, no. It's easy to talk about money. It's hard to talk about our emotions around money. (laughs) (laughs) And we're not taught this, you know, I, I, um, I read an, uh, a research report recently, and this blew my mind, that uh, about 65% of people who have a financial advisor don't feel like they have anyone to talk to. <laughs> my mind, what? Yeah. Wait, you get naked showing me every statement that you have, and you're not going to tell me how you feel about this stuff? Yeah. You're not going to tell me where your anxieties are? Um but that's true. And I, I think it's um, it's not modeled for us in a healthy way how to have an open communication around money from our early upbringing. And then I think there's a certain um, approach that we all need to decide, really, that we want to take on. Like, I, I think there's three, three steps to it. One, I'm going to decide that I want to talk about it. Two, I'm going to completely panic over it. And then three, I'm going to do it, right? Because if the stakes are really high about something that you're hiding, at some point, the panic is really going to set in. And 
you know, I'm a big fan of Chris Voss and his negotiation um, tactics. And the FBI has a, has a has an approach to negotiation, which is not what you think that it would be. But I feel like, you know, telling our stories is it's a cross between an FBI hostage <laughs> negotiation and a 12 step program. Yeah. So just everyone be prepared. It, that's what's going to feel like, but it's really worth it. But the hostage negotiation, you're holding yourself hostage, mm-hmm. right? And I'm a believer, and I think that there are a lot of different models for change. I happen to think writing and speaking are two of the most powerful ways to change ourselves. And the person that we're speaking with, if we choose to go that route, we just need to ask them for a few things, mostly to listen. And what we want is what Carl Jung talks about, which is unconditional positive regard, that regardless of what I say to you, it will not change how you feel or or think about of me, right? And when we receive that, like, we can let it go. Yeah. We can let it go. I know for me um, that I felt so alone and it was very terrifying. Um, And I think a lot of people out there, it's so isolating because they don't feel like they have anybody to talk to. I can relate to that. Um, it's, I think what you're talking about and what I so appreciate about you being open and honest about how that's how you felt and how you dealt with that and processed it is that the being alone part is when we aren't telling those stories, right? We do think it's just us. There's nothing that normalizes that for us. And when we feel alone, it is uh, terrifying there's a biological component to that, right? We all know this, that, you know, we're going to be put adrift on, you know, uh, our own piece of ice, you know, <laughs> to go float by ourselves. That's yeah. how it feels, right? It's, and talking to other people is what can normalize our experience, right? Whether that person can totally relate to what we're saying, but what I think we can give each other is... When we talk about our experience, it's like we want to get to that place with this person where they are, they overstand us. And what I mean is they both understand our story Mm -hmm. and they understand where that story comes from. And when you when you know the background of how that story originated for that person, where that narrative came from, it may not make sense to you as the listener, but it makes sense to you listening of why it makes sense to the person who's speaking the story. That's the overstanding. Like, I think that's what we're looking for. And when we get to that place, that's where we feel that connection. And that connection makes us feel like we belong. And, you know, we were talking earlier about how some of this stuff, you know, came up for me. What's, what's interesting is, you know, really growing up with spendthrift parents, which is spendthrift, such a tricky little word, right. right? Some people think it means, you know, well, I'm thrifty when I spend my money. And the word thrift used to mean frugal. And it used to mean, or I'm sorry, we think of thrift today as frugal. What right. the word thrift used to mean was prosperity. So spendthrift means to spend one's prosperity. Mm. My biggest fear 
was I would grow up to be a spendthrift like my parents were in the extreme. Like my parents just didn't overspend. I mean, we went down to like, we're within a hair of bouncing the check and the house being foreclosed on, but there's a brand new airplane at the airport. (laughs) And I remember a couple of years back, uh, as one can imagine with, with, um, my college experience, as soon as we had our sons, I, we started saving for them and I never put any type of pressure on them of where they would go to college. I just wanted to have enough money in their accounts to send them wherever they wanted to go. No, no, you know, no limit on that. And a couple of years back, my husband and I were having a conversation and I shared with him that, you know, I was really, sometimes I worry about being a spendthrift and <clears throat> we're really on board with our money. I probably am a little more of a spender than, than he is. And that's probably where some of my concern comes from. And he said to me, so like the way that you've helped prepare us for retirement and the fact that the kids' accounts are locked and loaded for college three years in advance, like, and you're worried about being a spendthrift. And it was so great because I didn't have the outsider's perspective of it was something that I worried about so much that that worry kind of overrode the the actual positive behavior that I was doing. And it did take that little outsider's perspective to say, yeah, but that's not how you are, are. That's not how you're acting. And like that, the fear of spendthrift, like it totally left me after that. I was like, wow, I'm so glad that I said that. And he, I mean, in a really kind way, he was kind of like, are you an idiot? Like, (laughs) (laughs) look at, look at the track record here. Like, let's look at the body of work here. That's not how you've been behaving. And I, but I had this like, oh my God, back to the security, like, well, and you know, what's so important about that, and you mentioned it, I mentioned it, um, you know, money is a relationship, right? Our relation, it's a relationship with money. And that sounds crazy, but that means we have a relationship with money until our last breath. Yeah. Right. And even then people are still like, oh, when they get the last breath, do I get their money? Right. So it goes <laughs> on even after we, we stop breathing. But the point mm-hmm. being is I still have some of those scripts come into my life. I still have some of the stories. Fortunately, I'm more conscious and I can go, aha, but having another person that can help us say, uh, Bob, Michelle, uh, put that script away. Uh, that mm-hmm. might've worked 20 years ago, um, but that's not the actual story that's happening right now. That's not yeah. actually the truth of things. And so I just think it's important to to, to be aware that even if we're so refined and we've got the money in the bank and life is good and we're taking vacations and we're advocating for ourselves, those stories and those scripts still can have a way of creeping in at the most inopportune times um, and to just know that. And, and it's not yeah. a bad thing and we don't have to be ashamed of it. We just need to be aware. Absolutely. Well, it's very fluid, right? Our, uh, our state of mind and our status right, are fluid. And, you know, I don't, I don't love that expression. You know, I knew I arrived when, you know, I I think we arrive many, many times in our life, right? And we just, um, we grow ourselves up into, you know, finer versions of our identity as we move along. And some of that 
is you've got to shed a skin and get rid of an old script because that was, you know, that was your former self and now you've evolved into somebody else. But yeah, it's really about, I think, being keenly aware of um, what tape is running in your head, which I know you spend a lot of time talking, thinking about. Absolutely. And, you know, the other thing I would just say, and I've started saying this a lot because I, it feels so important, um, maybe as I'm a little older, but, you know, when you always see that lifeline, they draw the line and this is your timeline, and then there's a dot at the end. Mm. Well, that's when it's over. So I, I don't actually want to get to that dot. <laughs> I want to actually <laughs> delay and have a lot of fun and have a lot of pleasure along the way instead of just like, I've got to get to that dot. No, right. that dot's coming whether I, whether I want it to or not. So the right. more that I can actually engage in life and not worry about that being the destination, but right. living my life and, and experiencing it as being, as being what it's about. Yeah, I agree with you. I feel like I could talk for another six hours. You know that we joked about that ahead of time because this stuff for me is so, um, it's so powerful and it, like it's, it's available, accessible to everyone if we're willing to step into it. And it's a scary thing. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I love that you do that. I am going to ask one more question before we go to our fast five. Cause I want to know now that you're married, um, mm-hmm. do you and your husband have the same views about money or have you come to be in alignment? And do you talk to your children about money? We have the same views about money. It's purpose, our values or alignment. How we speak with our children is very different. I'm much more open. Not, but I don't cross that line to where if I'm feeling nervous about something, that's not what it's about. In fact, I, this is probably awful, but I don't really, you know, when we say, People come from, oh, he comes from a good family or she comes from a good family. You know, they're really successful. All good, all true. But I actually tell my kids, I'm rich, you are not. And I say that to them because the majority of us earn our wealth one way. We translate our income into wealth and they're going to do the same thing. Am I going to support and help my children? Of course. And to be honest with you, given the way that I grew up, uh, I've had to really think very hard and clearly around what does financial support for our children mean to me? Because I was financial support was really withheld from me in certain ways. So I've had to wrestle with that as a as a mom. So I hope that answered your question. Absolutely, and yeah, no, it's so important, and I think it's important to have to have some kind of conversation with your kids, other than no, you can't have that. You're greedy, uh, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. you don't have to give them all the information. You don't have to show them the four hundred one k, but you might be able to say, "There's enough that we're going to make it through the next couple of months. We're going to be able to eat, right?" If if kids are having fears. But having those conversations, including them in family money conversations um, Mm -hmm. and all that kind of stuff. Um, And now you have two boys and did uh, you had a brother Uh, in your childhood versus your kids that are now having their childhood? um, Did you notice a difference in being treated as uh, as a girl versus being a boy or was it equal footing? And do you notice any uh, gender bias with your kids? and would have been different if they were girls. Hmm. My brother and I joke around all the time that we had completely different upbringings. (laughs) My brother had absolutely no idea what was going on financially in the house. Zip, zero, nada. So he didn't get a lot of the same stress that I got around it. You know, what's really interesting is 
the way that my husband and I are, um, you know, I heard somebody say this once, you'll know when you married well, when you've got to leave on an early flight for a business meeting and your husband will iron your shirt for the suitcase that's got to go in the morning of for you. Wow. Like that's the kind of guy I married. And he's a man's man. Uh, but we don't have a lot of the traditional lines drawn in the sand of, you know, this is your domain or this is my domain. We, uh, we just both do whatever needs to be done. You know, I'll, I paint and spackle in the house more than he ever has. He cooks a lot more than I do. Like, we just don't, I think we lead by whatever we're good at and talented at. In fact, even with money, I'm in charge of investments. He's in charge of cash flow. Like, we just delineated it that way. He's like, I don't know how to invest. So I, all of that, I'm sure, is coming through with our sons. Um, we don't have specific gender conversations with them at all. And I think that's because we don't have any gender-specific kind of conversations between my husband and I. Yeah. We just don't. Yeah. Awesome. Well, we are at our fast five, so we're gonna we're gonna just shift a little bit, um, and I'm gonna ask you these five questions and just see what let's see what comes up. What was the hardest decision you ever had to make around money? Telling my story. Mm. What's the most valuable lesson that you've learned from life about your from your kids? I think there's two. Um, we don't always pass our resilience down to them, <laughs> and they are always wiser then I think they're going to be, and when a situation arises, that's when it shows up and they Mm. step up. Awesome. Awesome. What was your most recent indulgent purchase? Most recent? A photograph. And can you describe your favorite photograph that you've ever taken? Best photo ever. That is the hardest question anybody could ask me in the world. I got two kids. How am I going to answer that question? Uh, <laughs> my favorite subjects. It's got a little bit of a story. I'll try to make it quick. Okay. Uh, one of my favorites was actually one of my sons at a um, carnival. And I kept, I had a vision in my mind of uh, the photograph I wanted to take, which was a circular uh, amusement ride up in the air. And all I said to my son and his friend was, I'm going to stand here. And when you guys circle around, look, look at me in the camera. And I was determined to get my shot. So I bought like 10 rides for them. They were loving it. And I finally (laughs) got my shot and they are perfectly in focus and everything around them is blurry. So it was from a technical perspective, it was one of my most rewarding photographs ever take. That that is so awesome, and they I lo- loved it. I'm and they surprised it. they never got sick going on that ride. So many times. <laughs> and they got to do it ten times. That's a that's a good deal. That's a that's a fair that's fair pay. Yeah. <laughs> if you could make one thing free for the rest of your life, what would it be? Books. Hmm. Free books for everyone. That would be awesome. That would be awesome. Um, yeah. So we're at our M M&M and M moment, our sweet spot, our money and motivation. Could you give the listeners a practical financial tip or a piece of wealth wisdom that you've that has worked for you? It's actually what my mother used to say when I was growing up, which is it's in, it's what's inside that counts. It's what's inside that counts. And she meant it in a different context of don't judge a book by its cover and what's inside a person is what really is relevant. And from a money perspective, what's inside counts. What's going on inside counts. Absolutely. Thank you. 
welcome. Well, this has been, Michelle, such an awesome conversation. And you know, one of the things that I want to reaffirm to our listeners out there who are wanting to get their money stories together, mm-hmm. get a new script, change their life trajectory, uh, find safety. Like mm-hmm. you talked about safety, and I think that this is so important. Um, you can't always share your dreams and passions and fears with everybody because some people might try to take you out. Um, it might even be a family member. And yeah. so it's so important to look around and find places that feel safe, that you can get get support, that you can seek refuge and 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 find those people, find those angels. Like, I don't think it was luck that you had that amazing woman there. I think that was just one of the angels that showed up because you were doing the work. And I think for so many people, those angels are out there. If we're willing to just keep doing the work, people will show up and help us. That's a beautiful way to put it. They will show up. So Mm -hmm. I just so appreciate your vulnerability because I think we do hold so many secrets. And again, it's how we took on the story and we wrote the script. Our parents, and yes, I was angry at my parents for many years. I had a lot of blame. Uh, So I'm not saying that that's not part of the process. And I've come to realize they were doing the best they could. I believe most parents come into the world with the intention to be the best parent ever, to give the most love and to give the most support. And then life gets messy. And so know that your parents did the best they they could and and maybe they're still doing the best they're co- doing you know they're still doing the best they could and maybe it's not good enough for you but that's like have some compassion and mm-hmm. you work on your script let them work on theirs um but really just keep speaking it i often felt like everything was life and death as well mm-hmm. um and i would just say to people it's it's not it's not. It's, right. It was so hard for me to believe that. I literally would tell people, this will kill me. I will die. And they're like, Bob, seriously, you're, uh, you will die. So I, I, mm-hmm. I love that you took the risk and that you did the things that needed to get you where you were going. Write it down. Speak it out. I am a big proponent of both of those because I believe that they are neurologically connected to our bodies and what we hold emotionally. And so if you want to change things, write it down, speak it out, put it out in the universe, show up. Even if everybody doesn't feel like they want to hear you, you are entitled to bring your voice, bring yourself just as you are. So I so... Really appreciated this conversation today. Where can people find you online and in social media? Uh, the best place to find me is either Instagram or LinkedIn and my website, which is michelleab.com with two L's, michelleab.com. Uh, actually, there's something there for your listeners, which is the success formula guide. And the reason that I created that is very much like my parents who I, I call them high performance defiant. Right, they had a successful life, and they just were a mess when it came to their money. And we don't always do everything equally well in all these different realms of our lives. We play different roles. We have different needs depending on, you know, what what where we are and who we're with, really. And this guide is is meant to help people to look back on three or more of their prior successes in any area of their life and really identify what I call their own unique success formula, because every single thing that's made you successful in another area of life is a transferable skill onto your money. And you can identify that and up level your game when it comes to money. 
Well, awesome. We will put that up, and I encourage everybody listening to go in and download that uh, because, like, there's so much information out there. This sounds like an awesome piece of success recipe for people that really want to do, like, have a different life and show up and be the best version of themselves. So I definitely encourage that. And I know you have a book coming out, um, so you'll have to let us know when that comes out so we can uh, be happy to push that out and remind people, go check out Michelle's book. Thank you. We would love to do that. Well, Appreciate I, that. Absolutely. So folks, if you know someone out there who's struggling with money, having money issues, having financial shame, let them know about this podcast. Let them know about Michelle and let them know that they can have a different outcome. And I just want to say to our listeners, please um, don't forget to share the love, like, follow, and share on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Search for Money You Should Ask, all one word. Follow this podcast on your favorite podcast player or visit Spotify and search for Money You Should Ask or click on the link in the description. If you're watching this episode on YouTube, don't forget to like, comment, and subscribe. For more tips, tools, or learn how to have a healthy relationship with money, visit themoneynerve.com. That's nerve, not nerd, the money nerve. (laughs) Michelle. Thank you so much. It has been such a pleasure. I so appreciate what you're out there doing and bringing Thank to the you. world. Thank you. And likewise, you're you're talking about money in a whole new way. And um, I think the conversation, it's time. We're ready. Hey there, Money Master. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Did you learn some valuable insights around your relationship with money? Our guests shared some of their financial epiphanies. You might have experienced one too. Don't just sit there with that aha moment. Share it with us and the world by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. Or leave a comment on one of our socials, at Money You Should Ask. Let's spread the word and help others explore their financial health too. But that's not all. Do you want to live in abundance and build wealth that can sustain you and your family for generations to come? It only takes one thing, the willingness to change the way you think about your money. It's time to test your money nerve and discover what's been holding you back from financial freedom. Take the free quiz now at themoneynerve.com and begin your journey towards a prosperous future.